Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us science at newstalk.com or find us on Twitter. We're at News Talk Science. Thanks very much for subscribing, downloading, listening. As always, we really appreciate you sharing the program and letting people know about our little show here. Really, really interesting episode for you this week where we're going to be talking about why and how and when autopsies get done. Just a word of note, if you are queasy like our producer Marais, it might be a little bit too much for me. I don't know, um, but it's very, very interesting. First, though, of course, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me is Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and uh, double Dr. Lara Dungan, immunologist and clinician. You're both very welcome. Shane, our first story has something to do with a, a new type of water. Yes, Jonathan, water, water 2.0. So um, it's a new phase of water. So it's it's not a, it's not a whole new molecule or anything like that. Water is the um, I suppose when you think of uh, like ask animal what's a molecule, they might say water. But water is a chemical oddball. It's really strange, and uh, so it's made up of hydrogen and oxygen. And you get these things called hydrogen bonds between the constituent molecules of water, and that gives it its very very unusual properties. So what this study has has shown, it's been published in Nature, is the discovery of a new phase of ice, right? So we think of water existing in um, vapor form, in liquid form, and then in solid form. But of the solids, there are 20 known crystalline versions. And um, yes, there are. So depending on the temperatures and pressures, the crystals of ice will um, will form in one of 20 different ways, which is remarkable, right? <laughs> just that, think of it as... Like, I'm just thinking um, of skiing and you've got the sort of light, fluffy, powdery type. You've got a sludgy type. Is that what they mean? Or is it something completely different? <laughs> well, it, it, yes, it is. But you're, you're not a million miles off in the sense that when you're on on slushy ice, there is a mixture of two phases. So you have solid and liquid phase kind of rubbing up against each other. But this is a new discovery of what's called an amorphous uh, form of ice. So it's amorphous in the sense that it doesn't form crystalline uh, structures. Uh, So it looks like a white powder and it has about the same density as liquid water. It's thought that this is the, the dominant type of ice found in space mainly because it's too cold in space for water to form crystals when it when it cools. Um, they did a fantastic experiment here. They, they got uh, ice and they stuck it into a machine at minus 200 Celsius and they got little um, steel balls and they milled it. So they, they basically like, you know, uh, roughed it up and they, they turned it into, instead of tiny crystals of ice, they turned it into a whole new phase of ice. As I said, a medium density amorphous ice or MDA is what they're calling it. I think they need to have another go at that one, but that's where they are at the moment, uh, MDA. And it's thought that it might um, exist inside the ice moons of Jupiter and Saturn, and that sheer forces in those moons would mimic the milling process that created it here on, on Earth. And they also found that when you heat it up, um, it turns into crystals and it, it's hugely exothermic. That means it gives out an enormous amount of heat as, as it uh, turns into crystals. And they reckon that could cause what are known as massive ice quakes on those moons. Uh, so 
really wow. cool stuff. So, so mm. this is not like very fine ice at all. It's a very different thing. No crystal structures within what was ice, but essentially has been sort of milled like wheat into this fine powder. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. The, the best analogy I could think of is, you know, the way glass is an amorphous solid. So it's it's made up of silicon dioxide, right? But it's it's not um, arranging the silicon dioxide molecules in any sort of a crystalline or ordered structure. This is an analogous or sort of a comparable situation for ice. That's very cool, I have to say. Um, all right, our second story, Lara, has to do with so-called brainwave learning. What is brainwave learning? Yeah, I know. I suppose it's kind of the idea of, of science fiction or science fantasy. Um, this came out of the University of Cambridge, um, and it's a, a researcher who, who works on this an awful lot, Professor Zoe Quirtzi. And it is a really interesting paper, um, and I don't know if it is deliberately difficult to comprehend because I read the paper and I really, my brainwaves shut down, I have to say. The, the, the language that's used in these type of papers is almost beyond comprehension. But let me try and distill down what they have done um, so that we can hopefully understand. So what they have said is that we have brainwaves, which we obviously know. So we are, these are detected with a thing called an EEG. Um, and it's it's almost like the stickers you put on your heart for an ECG, but you put them on your head instead. And you see all these lovely waves. And one of the waves that comes out is an alpha wave. And that t- tends to be the type of wave that dominates in our brains when we're you know, awake and when we're relaxed and when we're receptive to learning as such. So their theory was that if they could match this wave pattern very, very quickly, it would essentially prime the brain to learn. So they called it entraining. So what they did was they they showed a very, very quick one and a half second, literally just a one and a half second sort of image with these waves in it that were matched personally. So people had the EEGs on their head. They got their alpha wave then they matched this 1.5 second image that had this same pulsating rate to it. And then they gave them a cognitive task. So their job was to try and pick out a specific shape in a very cluttered background. They got them to do it one day, then they got them to go home and come back and do it again the next day. And they did this literally hundreds of times. They had to pick out hundreds of shapes, about 800 different variations. Oh my God, those Um, poor people. I know, it is pretty grim. But what they found was the people who had had the matched alpha waves, everybody got the one and a half second pulse, but some were well matched and some were purposely unmatched. And the matched ones they found were able to do the task three times faster than the other group, which is actually very, very fast. And they were able to still, again, the next day without repeating the one and a half second pulse, they were still faster than the, the, the control group. So look, I don't know if there's something in it. I don't know how practical it is. An EEG is very difficult to administer. It requires an awful lot of medical intervention. There are more simple machines these days with kind of maybe just one little electrode on the, on the outside of the scalp, which may work in the future. I have no idea if this is genuinely going to be a way that people learn faster, but it is actually a very interesting experiment anyway, just to see how something so simple and so tiny could potentially unlock uh, your ability to learn. So what are brain waves exactly, Lara? I know that's a big question, but what, what are we talking about when we talk about brain waves? It's literally we're detecting electrical activity. So all of our cells in our body have electrical activity. That's how we are able to pass messages from one cell to the next. Some have very overt activity, such as the myocytes in your heart. 
um, and some have slightly quieter, but still very detectable electrical, electrical activity, such as your brain. So that's essentially what they are. It is the electrical activity that's being detected by these electrodes on the outside of your head. But so, is, is yeah. the, what I mean is, is the word wave an appropriate, I mean, do they go out in waves across our brains? I mean, no, no, yeah. so definitely not. But they are received in a wave-like pattern. So we read them in a wave-like pattern. Okay. The same way, the one that people know a lot is the ECG. So the very pretty waves that come from our heart's electrical activity. A brain electrical activity EEG is a lot more chaotic looking. But we we read it in waves. So it is received in waves. But it's not like a wave of activity that they start to the front and pulses across to the, the back of the brain. That's not how it works in reality. But But... So that was that's what's going on in our head. We receive these waves and they were seeing a, a video, uh, essentially a visualization of that for just one and a half seconds and an, uh, increase their ability to perform this task threefold. Yeah, essentially. Wow. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. So yeah. They, they basically showed a video that oscillates at the same frequency, essentially. So so you're looking at something that's supposed to reflect the frequency of your brainwaves. It's all a little bit unusual, but I mean, it, it did cause people to be able to learn an awful lot better. So it's, it's very interesting as well. Shane, we were talking about um, flipping poles last week, albeit very uh, briefly. This is a really in- interesting story about cowrie trees. What are they? Um, they are an ancient uh, Kiwi or New Zealander tree. And I love this story because they found this whopping big 60 ton tree when they were digging up uh, uh, foundations or digging up the ground to put in foundations for a building. And I just love that instead of going, oh, there's a tree, let's burn it. And they were like, oh, we should probably tell someone about this. And then scientists got involved and you can only imagine the engineers covering their heads thinking we'll never get this thing built. But they found this tree and they reckoned they could do science with it. Um, it, it, it lived 42,000 years ago and had been preserved because the ground was bog-like um, and it lived for 1,700 years. Um, so it, it was an old wow. thing when it died and it's, it's, it's long dead. So it's able to tell us about what the world was like 42,000 years ago and in huge detail because you could look at, well, the regular things, you could look at the rings in the trees to look at, uh, you know, like year to year uh, temperature changes. So you get a sense of climate, but they could also look at the the concentration of an isotope called carbon-14, which we would know uh, it's used often for uh, radioactive aging. And um, but the concentration of carbon-14 is related to the amount of cosmic rays coming in from from outer space. And so a high proportion of um, of carbon-14 at any time would suggest that the magnetic field was weak at that because time. Because the, the magnetic fa- field is what deflects those rays and protects us, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. That's really important. So the magnetic field, which is 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 due to the the rotation of liquid metal in the outer core of the Earth, it provides this protective shield for us. And if we didn't have it, we would have far more cosmic rays. They do an awful lot of damage to to DNA, and so they can cause cancer, etc. So, um, what they have shown is that uh, there was a a flipping of the the mag- the Earth's magnetic field uh, forty two thousand years ago, um, and but. Whilst we knew before that this thing happened kind of in in the grand sense, we never had this level of year on year data that we have now. So we have this extreme granularity in our data now, and we're able to tell an awful lot more about the the kind of the, the path of that flip, how strong it was at different points. And because we also have the rings uh, for the trees, we could see how it coincided with climactic changes. And they are suggesting 
and I underline the word suggest, that when the magnetic field uh, changed, that there was an effect on climate. And so what they've done is looked at the rings in that single tree, and they've looked at other data that was collected at different points around the world. The only thing that kind of disagrees with this is ice core data. So, you know, the, where they dig into the Greenland ice sheet and they're yeah. able to look at how, how the atmosphere was uh, tens of thousands of years ago. It doesn't necessarily agree with the data found from this tree, but it's 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 still very interesting all the same. And it's what a find to dig this tree up and then to think to do science with it. So just to be clear, they, they dug this ancient tree and in it, they, the lifespan of it, they, there appeared to be a flip of the magnetic poles. And what they're suggesting is that flip of the magnetic poles, quite understandably, and, and, and you would imagine this is what would of course happen because that magnetic field dropped right down. The There was a change in climate because we were less protected by the magnetic field from things coming from outer space, uh, essentially things coming from the sun. Um, and and they had a, a negative effect, I suppose. It depends on your viewpoint, but they had an effect on the climate at, at that time, which we weren't necessarily sure, but that's not what we see in ice core. So still more yeah. questions to be answered. Right. Absolutely. That's it. Yeah. And and the way the way they know it might have changed is that the increase in cosmic rays would, would have killed off the ozone layer at that time. And that in turn would have led to the climate change. That's the idea that they have. Yeah. Did you get that, Lara? Or do you need me to mansplain it for you? <laughs> oh, very. Funny, oh, my goodness. Yeah. What a segue. <laughs> We should just mention that Lara is in her scrubs as she records here. And she, <laughs> double Dr. Lara Dungan could kick both our backsides, John, when that it was, comes that, to any topic. That was, of course, a segue into our final piece, which is about mansplaining, Lara. All oh, right. OK. Here was me getting defensive for Lara. <laughs> Thank you, though, Shane. I appreciate it. <laughs> what, a, what a night. So, Jonathan, this is a story that has just been released, um, research done by Caitlin Briggs. And she's a research fellow in Michigan State University. And as you uh, appropriately just outlined, mansplaining is the idea of um, generally a man, I suppose by definition, it kind of has to be a man, although arguably it has changed a little bit, um, explaining something to a woman or a gender minority individual who already knows the fact. So it came originally from an author called Rebecca Solnit. She was at a party um, and she had written uh, an entire book about a very famous old English photographer. And um, a man approached her at the party and said, like, oh, I believe you're an author. You've written a few books. And she was like, yeah, she she said, "Um, you know, she started to explain her most recent book about Edward and Weebridge. And he said, well, let me stop you there. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of this this new book that's actually been published and proceeded to tell her all about her own book, um, which obviously she found incredibly insufferable. And she wrote an essay about it back in 2008. She didn't coin the phrase, but ever since then, people have been calling it mansplaining. But Caitlin Briggs did actual research into it. And what she did was she got 128 volunteers to pretend they were going to be on a committee and their job on the committee was to allocate funds. So there was bonus funds suddenly available and to allocate them to deserving employees and to decide who should get them and why. And then they were brought into a room with two actors and they didn't realize these people were actors and the actors were either men or women. Um, and the actors then, rather than ask these people, where would you like to allocate the funds and why? They proceeded to explain the task again to them as if they simply hadn't understood the task they were ascribed. Um, and then afterwards, they brought the volunteers out and they asked them how they felt about it. Um, and in general, they found that um, the women who were essentially mansplained by men 
had extremely negative outcomes from from the meeting. They felt that they were being condescended, that their competence was being questioned. Um, and overall, they were made to feel extremely bad about this. Um, the men who were um, essentially mansplained by women didn't really seem to mind and they didn't see it as a, a question on their competence at all whatsoever. Um, it's not the only research that's gone into this. There's been more research that, you know, that came out of Charlton University in, in Ottawa in Canada, which shows that uh, virtually all women say that they've had this perpetrated against them in, in at least the last year. Um, and it does have a very negative effect on people, um, not only in the workplace, but I mean, everywhere. Like I obviously work in a hospital and it's uh, rife in these kind of areas. So while it is obviously funny and it is funny to discuss, you know, it is very interesting research and it is the kind of thing that can greatly affect, you know, women and, and gender minorities and obviously some men as well. And I'm not trying to be sexist. Condescension is, is uh, gender neutral. So it is just something to be aware of, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, yours was a segue. <laughs> you did not intend it. As a general <laughs> did you understand that, Shane? <laughs> as, as always, I woman explain it to you, Shane. <laughs> I, 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 if I could just have Larry Dungan follow me around and explain most signs yeah. things to me, I'd be very glad. <laughs> so would I. Thank you. So would I. We are very glad to have you both, actually, uh, Dr. Larry Dungan, Dr. Shane Bergen. Thanks very much. Now, it takes a special kind of scientist to want to conduct an autopsy. And my next guest is taking it to a whole new level this month as she performs a live demonstration for an audience at the Northern Ireland Science Festival, albeit on an actor playing a dead body so they won't actually be a, a real full autopsy. But you'll get to understand exactly what a histopathologist does. Dr. Louisa Miller, specialist registrar in histopathology. Welcome to the programme, Louisa. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me on. So um, this is a fascinating world to me. And whenever we, I don't know what it is. I, I, I'm one of those people who's fascinated by death and, and, and understanding why we, why we die. And I suppose that's the main thing that you do, right? You're, you're trying to figure out what went wrong in a person's death. Is that right? What does a histopathologist do? So a histopathologist, 90% um, of my work's based in diagnostics. So anytime someone has something removed during surgery or has a biopsy taken, it's sent to us here in the lab. We process it and then look at it down the microscope in order to give a definitive diagnosis. So is it infection, inflammation or cancer? Right. If it is cancer, what kind, how bad, how far is it gone? Mm. Um, and then the rest of our work would revolve around autopsy pathology, um, which is obviously why we're involved in the Living Autopsy event for the Science Festival. So talk to me about um, the, the way you might go about uh, an autopsy, because obviously for some deaths, it must be fairly straightforward. You have a very, fairly good idea of what happened to someone um, but what is the approach to, to figuring out how someone died? Um, so I think it's important to understand that there are two main types of, of autopsy. There are the ones that probably most people think of um, that are the medical legal autopsies or forensic autopsies. Right. Um, and similar but not exactly what you see on TV, but these are the ones where um, a person may have died in um, suspicious circumstances due to violence or an accident. Um, and there are very set reasons why their deaths would be referred to the coroner mm. who would then instruct a um, pathologist to 
perform an autopsy um, in order to ascertain how that person died. The other type of autopsy is what's known as a hospital or a consented autopsy. And these would be the kind that um, myself and my colleagues would perform. Um, these are where someone is admitted to hospital unwell, um, Possibly the doctors in the hospital have difficulty um, giving a definitive diagnosis or perhaps they expect the patient to get better and then suddenly they pass away. Um, there's no suspicion of, of any foul play or you know, neglect or misadventure in their death, but the clinicians and the family would like answers as to why this person died. Mm. Um, so the clinicians will ask the family for consent to do an autopsy. Um, and if the family say yes, then we will go ahead and organise that to happen. Um, so that's then where myself and my colleagues would come in. Although I've said there's those two types of autopsies, the, the procedure for both is essentially similar. Um, in the, the medical legal ones, it might be a bit different. They may not know who the person is. Mm. Um, you know, they may be unidentified, um, at which case then they would have to include other professionals for, say, DNA or fingerprinting or the like forensic odontology where they use a person's dental records to confirm their identity but once we have done that our first step for an autopsy is a very detailed external examination is this, this where you walk around the body with one of those um dictaphones and, and you kind of describe yes, what you see yeah that's exactly what it is um but yes we describe everything that we see we give a you know everything from a general comment on a person's external appearance and how that might relate to their cause of death. Um, you know, do they appear frail and sick um, or, or they do they appear generally well and healthy? What about like, the, you, you talked about the general appearance, obviously you'll, you'll, you'll talk about height and eye colour and so on, but what about, um, what about the colour of the person themselves? I mean, you know, obviously the best time to examine why someone died is right after they died. How quickly do you get these cadavers and how how much has changed by the time you get to a body? Performing hospital or consented autopsies, we're relatively lucky. These bodies usually arrive to us relatively quickly. Mm. Um, we get to examine them usually within a few days of passing. And in that gap in between when the patient has died and when we examine them, their body is carefully uh, wrapped and stored in a temperature controlled environment to reduce the amount of change that might happen. Mm. Um, obviously, for medical legal autopsies, you have very little, if any, control usually over what happens to the body between the time of death and when you get to examine them. And it could be anything from a day to weeks or months before you would examine them after their death. And obviously that can have a massive impact on on what you can determine right. and what you can't determine. But you know, there's a thing about fingernails growing longer, which is, I think is a bit of a myth, isn't there? And then it, hair and stuff, like what stuff tends to change quickly in a body? Um, so you're right. There is a myth that after you die, that your fingernails and your hair continue to grow. That's uh, not quite true. What actually happens is that the your your skin starts to dehydrate it loses water and, and moisture and as such it, it shrinks back but if you look that would then make it look like a person's hair has grown longer right. or their fingernails have grown longer 
so yes, a myth. They don't continue to grow after death. So um, talk to me about the, the the internal examination because this is something that really fascinates me because when you see it on, on, on movies, it seems like you you know you use a scalpel and literally just the the, the skin and flesh and excuse uh, me listeners for for delving into this if you are squeamish if you're having your breakfast um I apologize but um it seems like it just comes right off the the skin and flesh when you use a knife is it that straightforward um when in real life and how do you take out organs for examination and so on is it is it a very um is it is it a very um clean process it looks very clean on tv um not not usually no <laughs> um it's not as clean as it appears on tv it's not as as messy and and often disgusting as people would think it would be but it's definitely not as clean as it appears on tv um so after we've confirmed the consent and the patient's identity and done our external examination the start of our kind of physical examination would be with our incision so for a hospital autopsy this is generally a y incision you start with a very sharp blade on the front of the chest near the shoulders follow it along the clavicles till it meets in front of the breastbone and then you take that incision all the way down around the belly button to the pubic bone Um, and from there yes we can retract back the skin and it's not it's not awfully difficult it does require some technique to prevent you from cutting a hole in the skin with the knife because like I said it's very sharp but um, you you want to ensure that this uh, patient is presentable afterwards for for their family to view so you don't want to be making any more incisions than you need to Um, but once the the skin is retracted back we can then see the uh, chest bone and the front of the ribs and we can see the abdominal organs um, and their protective covering the omentum we would then use rib shears to cut through the ribs um, again on the front of the chest, but as far to the side as we can. And this allows us to take the chest bone and the front of the ribs off in one piece to expose the heart and lungs. And it also provides us enough room to be able to work within a person's chest cavity without endangering ourselves, because that's a one of the things we have to consider as well is that you know you could be injured in performing an autopsy with sharp blades or sharp fragments of broken bone specifically are really are often quite dangerous um and to help combat that we do have some you know extra ppe we can wear chainmail gloves for instance and wrist splints to help prevent those accidents but um just best to be careful and always know where your blade is before you move it yeah sounds, sounds um, like pretty, yeah. pretty good advice <laughs> make sure it's so, not uh, in your hand <laughs> so um these the next step then if if you're trying to figure out something to do with organ failure maybe heart disease or lungs or you want to see if there's liquid in places it shouldn't be um it, it, do you remove the organs one by one what organs typically get removed and and how how tricky is that to that to do um, so again, for a, for a hospital autopsy, what can and can't be done is is uh, defined by the consent that we're given. Oh, so right. um, the family can say that they would like a full autopsy, in which case all the organs, including the brain, would be removed and each would be examined in turn. Or they can limit the examination. So for instance, if 
they know that a patient has had a history of, of heart disease or a really bad, they're known to have a bad chest, you know, with lots of chest infections and mm. lung problems. They might limit our examination to just the chest. Yeah. Um, and at which point we have to abide by that. Um, we can't um, just have a little look anywhere else. We, we, we'll only do what we're consented to do. Uh, that seems, that seems um, fair. So um, you said the brain. Uh, how does the brain come out? Uh, so the brain will come out um, again. We'll make an incision behind the ear and around the back of the head at the bottom of the, the hairline. Right. Which will allow us to move the scalp forward and use a saw to remove the top of the skull. Yeah. Um, so the bony part that uh, is at the top of the head. And when we remove that, the brain can then be very gently um, handled out whilst using a blade to cut all of the connections that join the base of the brain to the skull and the spinal cord. Do you remember the first time you did that? Um, I just rem- I'm trying to think about how you do that and then like meet your friends for a dinner afterwards. Like It's just such an <laughs> extreme thing to do. Um, do you remember the first time you, you, you did something like that, remove the organs or whatever? Like, what was that feeling like? So I think I remember the first time that I got to observe an autopsy and um, my heart was pounding the mm. entire time and I was worried that I was going to throw up or uh, pass out the entire time. And I'm not sure, I'm sure the pathologist that was very kindly letting me observe um, thought that I was... Uh, useless and not motivated at all <laughs> mostly I was focusing on not being sick or passing out um, but it was it was fascinating I loved every minute of it mm. I think there is a, a personal aspect to you have to be a, a certain kind of person in order to do the work and um, luckily for my chosen career I seem to be that type of person <laughs> so you, you you take out the organs um, you presumably weigh them and measure them um, and compare them to sort of standard sizes and stuff do, do you take out sections then of each organ and do biopsies and uh, like you would do in, in the rest of your work to try and understand um, is our molecular or DNA tests done typically or, or or is it mostly visual typically before we would remove the organs we would examine them in in situ first make sure that they're in the right place and and what in, do the you right mean in the right place <laughs> um well <laughs> that sounds bad so there are conditions where organs can be in different places sinus invertus where all of the organs are on the opposite side from where they usually are really that could be interesting if you hadn't noticed that in the medical records before you started your examination but also throughout our lives there's quite a lot of organs that that we can do without and that often get removed or in some cases that get added if, if a patient has say like a kidney transplant right they may not remove the the patient's original kidneys, but just add the third one in and plumb it into place. Yeah. Uh, so we we would first look at all of the organs as they are in situ, and again, we would be looking as well for things that shouldn't be there. So, is there lots of blood in the chest um, cavity? Is there lots of blood in the abdominal cavity? Is there any signs of pus or other fluids that shouldn't be there? Mm. Um, and if there is, what we'll do is um, measure those. We'll give a rough measurement of how much fluid or, or how much blood is present. And that can be important, um, again, because it may relate to cause of death. Mm. And then what we do is remove the organs, usually in one solid block. 
from tongue all the way down to the um, intestines. What? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! So you just take it all yeah. one big, as one big system. Yeah, as one big system. Usually, yes. Um, because we, you want to see how they connect to each other, and, and the connective tissue as well is as important, presumably. Yeah, we want to see how they all interact, and again, it can be really important. Um, say, for instance, if a person, a patient has a tumor, um, it's not just about the tumor in the organ that it started, but has it gone through that organ into an adjacent organ? Has it has it seeded in other places? So it's, yeah. it can be important to see them in connection with each other. And it also helps then as well to map um, blood supply and things as well, which can be important. If, if you see something unusual, then you go off and, and test a sample for, for, for various things. Yes. Yeah, so again, we can take extra samples. If, if we see something, um, a blatant cause of death. So for instance, if we examine the heart and we see that there has been um, occlusion of the vessels that feed blood to the heart, which would cause a, a heart attack or myocardial infarction, then we have our, our cause of death and, mm. and we don't need to do any further testing. But if we, for instance, examined all of the organs and we didn't see anything with the naked eye, we could take very small samples of each organ to look at down the microscope to see if there are any uh, microscopic changes that would help us to determine cause of death. Um, and those, you know, can be signs, again, infection, inflammation, cancer, or, you know, e external causes. God, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, like I mean, I, I, I kind of think if I had the stomach for it, I would love this job. Uh, it seems like it's, um, it, it seems really, really interesting and a real detective um, a mystery wrapped up in it. Just before I go, you said you, you you know you take things out. Does anybody notice um, if you put it, things in the wrong? I presume you put stuff back. Do you? I mean, does all the stuff go back in the body when you're done and zip it back up? Oh yes, every, everything goes back into the body when we're done. Now they don't necessarily go back into the same position that we took them out of. What tends to happen is that they all go back into the abdominal cavity, all of the organs, into the stomach. Um, into this, into into In where the belly. stomach is, yes, um, and wow. then we would sew up the incision, um, and, and even the brain, this, even the brain, unless um, oh, so the brain, the brain's very soft. It's probably the equivalent of a of a soft jelly or a panna cotta mm. in texture. <laughs> Um, so if we want to examine it in, in really great detail, we would left. have to fix it in, in formalin or formaldehyde. But in order to do that, that takes about three weeks to do. Right. Um, and obviously, in, in say a case, a hospital autopsy, we, we wouldn't that, yeah. want to hold on to, to a person's loved one in all that time. But we could ask um, the family's permission to return everything else and the patient for burial and keep the brain for examination. And it would be returned at a later date, usually for um, a, a ceremonial cremation or, or internment right. later. I have to say, it, it is a fascinating job that you have. Um, do not miss this event. It's in the Crescent Arts Centre in Belfast on the 16th of February, because if you're like me, um, there's lots and lots of um, questions you might have. Um, so it's on in, in Belfast, but there are tickets um, available for the Playhouse in Derry, Londonderry on Friday, the 17th of February. Uh, Louisa, thank you so much for joining us. Fascinating work. Uh, good luck with the event. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, that was graphic and uh, fascinating and well done to producer Moraes for getting through it without throwing up. <laughs> 
Well, well done to Marais for not throwing up during that uh, episode. And uh, I, I don't know, did you make it all the way to the end? I suppose you must be if you're here. Uh, I thought it was fascinating. I, I don't know why we're so fascinated by death. I suppose it, it just is the, the nature of, of everything. It's, it's all around us and it's, it will come one day for us all. Um, love to know what you made of that. You can email us science at newstalk.com. Comments from last week's episode. We were talking about unextincting the dodo. And uh, George Church, of course, um, is he has got a group and he says, look, we're going to do the dodo. And the eggs uh, from birds are tricky to do. It's not as easy as doing a mammal, it seems. But um, they reckon they, they will just go on that journey to unextinct uh, or de-extinct the dodo. And I said, look, go for it. I mean, elephants is one thing. If you're killing loads of ele- elephants in experiments, it's one thing. But if you have loads and loads of birds and you could undo an extinction i would be all for that um jeremy says in all seriousness we cause their extinction so if we have the technology to undo that then we should i mean getting a breeding pair of dodos or four or five or whatever the bottleneck number is to to actually repopulate the dodo population entirely i don't know but there is a habitat for them apparently because it's not that long ago since they we we off them all i i'm i'm kind of with you jeremy i kind of I mean, like, God knows we use a lot of animals in science for other, sometimes more dubious reasons. This, um, to see whether or not we can de-extinct species, the, the the benefits of even just going on that journey have to be worth it. And then could you imagine if we actually got a dodo? How amazing would that be? But then maybe that's just the wrong way of thinking about it. Um, I was <laughs> I was saying scissors paper rock or something and I, I get muddled sometimes my wife laughs at me because I, I make all of these malapropisms when I'm trying to communicate my ideas <laughs> Siobhan says Jonathan I was listening back to the program and you said scissors paper rock it's rock paper scissors not any other arrangement of those words Siobhan I apologise I do that all the time and actually it ruins a good punchline to a joke or a comeback to a snide comment I have to say quite often in my household um, and we were talking about sleep and dreams and uh, Connor says, I bet you'll have some very strange stories there. We didn't get a huge amount, but we we did get one from Pat in Cork. He says, Pat, I have a degenerating condition and lost my eyesight completely about eight years ago. I'm in my 60s now and I still haven't had a dream where I was actually blind. In fact, sometimes I believe I can see better in my dreams than I could in real life, loving the show. Wow, that's really interesting, Pat, because we were talking about... Um, uh, we were talking to one of our uh, guests and they were saying that as you lose your sight, you start to lose your sight in, in, in dreams as well. So that's not the case for, for Pat. Simon says, I remember when I switched from dreaming in English to dreaming in German. Is that usual? As I learned German, I became fluent in it and then I started just dreaming in German. I don't know. I've no idea. And then another one says, I can recall most of my dreams, at least I think so, because it's like the plot line of a film, though they still don't make sense. Yes, I've, I've mentioned many times my my dream of being an action hero, which happens all the time. And I have to just leave everything I have in my life and just uh, like fend for myself. And like the transition to that is always reasonably fine, <laughs> which which worries me in a way. Um, <laughs> uh, that's it for us, us on this week's uh, podcast big shout out to Matthew Lynch who I believe is a listener I met um, Matthew's mum at a party and she said uh, he was a big fan so 
Thanks very much for listening. Love to hear young people listening to science um, of all types. And I hope you enjoy this episode, as I'm sure most young people will have. Uh, that's it from, from us. Thanks to Maurice O'Sullivan, our producer, uh, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, Hugo De Silva, who was on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.